and welcome to Nice Jewish Fangirls, presented by JewishCoffeeHouse.com. Nice Jewish Fangirls is a podcast where three Orthodox women discuss all of the geeky things that we are obsessed with. My name is Michal Schick, and I am your host, and I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Tamar Herman. Hello. And S.M. Rosenberg. Hi. So, this is a big one, guys. Oh, is it? I had no idea. I know. <laughs> it's episode 20, which is bonkers. Ah, woo! That's a real milestone. We should, like, Google for, like, party noises and, and insert them in the edit. <laughs> <laughs> burr, burr, burr. <laughs> <laughs> our podcast is I almost will, old enough to drink, which is amazing. Day. So any thoughts on our 20th episode, guys? Favorite memories? Exciting things? I was just going to say, like, we did it. Like, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like that time we got a panel at Comic-Con. Yeah. Like, that- <laughs> <laughs> Uh, speaking of which, uh, if you want to come to our very first live panel, uh, or live anything, or panel anything, you can join us at New York Comic Con on Sunday, October 8th at 2.30pm in room, I think it's 1B03, and you can also find our uh, formal event that we made uh, on our Facebook page, which would... Uh, you don't have to RSVP or anything. You can obviously show up even if you don't RSVP or don't have Facebook or whatever. But it would be uh, really hard. It's really heartening for us to be like, okay, there's going to be some people there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you can also leave us uh, notes on the page if you want, like what kind of things you would like to see uh, at the panel. In addition, or you just can... general support. Exactly. Just general like general, you're support. awesome. Um, yeah. Or you can also email us. Twitter comments, etc. We are we are fairly accessible, as you guys know. But yeah, so we are coming up to that, and it, it's also I realized we we've been doing this for like a year now. Um, Yay! What was our first episode? I, I'm gonna Google. I don't remember. I mean, I keep a pretty meticulous calendar, but I don't know. Oh wow! Our first episode got 420 listens. <laughs> How neat is that? <laughs> it was. Oh, okay. According to SoundCloud, it was nine months ago. Oh, okay. okay. So we had a baby, but we yeah. have the first episode published on Jewish Coffee House on November 22nd. Ah, okay. It doesn't feel like it was that long. So should we do a celebration on November 22nd this year? Probably. What day is that? <laughs> I'm sure we can figure something out. That's uh, that's doable. I guess as, as we don't quite, but sort of almost, inch toward the conclusion of our first year recording Nice Jewish Fangirls, we're going to talk about beginnings this time we're going to be going into what we think makes a good beginning, a good, you know, uh, pilot episode for a TV series or the a good first book in a series or just any kind of, you know, we're, we're being pretty uh, loose with it. Any nice kind of beginnings. Um, we're also obviously coming up on the Jewish holidays, the Jewish New Year, really soon, actually. <laughs> and um, so we thought it would be a good topic to discuss currently however as usual and say it with me listeners we're gonna do our current obsessions first (laughs) (laughs) i feel like i feel like we can do this as like a you know a a slight children's uh television episode right yeah like dora you know let's just wait you know for five (laughs) seconds staring awkwardly at the screen for our viewers to chime in So, SM, why don't you get us started with your current obsession for this episode? 
Okay, so my current obsession, you know, periodically I do something baseball-related because, yes, baseball is a recurring obsession in my life. So um, this past Shabbos, I, um, my sister is actually in the hospital this past Shabbos. She was having a procedure. Oh, no, is she okay? Now. Yeah, she's home. She's okay. recovering. Um, I'm sorry. But, yeah, so I just, I needed something uh, big and distracting. So, like, and I wasn't in the mood to talk to humans. So I just, I got out this, this is actually probably the biggest book in my to-read pile um, that my brother had given me. Um, like a year ago, it's called The Game by John Pessa, and it is is nonfiction. Um, it and the the subtitle of uh, the game is Inside the Secret World of Base of Major League Baseball's Power Brokers, and it's not really about baseball, the sport, and you know anything that things that happen on the field. It's all about the behind the scenes and the rich men and their petty caddy games that they play with each other and Bud Selig being the worst. And George Steinbrenner, it was basically Donald Trump and their Twitter battles would have been epic if he were still alive. Um, and it's just like, if anybody ever tells me that, you know, that women are more petty or catty than men, I will be like, Dude, read this book. <laughs> you don't know you know nothing, Jon Snow. Um, <laughs> and it's just there's so much interesting stuff in here that I never knew. Um, like things that like baseball fans, you know, probably know about are like, you know, you might know that there was a strike in nineteen ninety four that cut the season short and actually canceled all the playoffs and play didn't resume until the next year. Um and I knew that, but I was, you know, what I was, I was like five years old in 94 and I had no concept of what was actually happening at the time. Um, and so this goes into the reasons behind the strike and how it was because the, uh, there were a lot of owners on the teams who they, let's see. So there, there are big market teams and there are small market teams. There's like New York where they have, you know, huge audiences and they have, you know, lots and lots of endorsements and deals and they make tons and tons of money and they can afford to buy all the star players, you know, when they, when they become available. And like the team that you're a fan of. Of course. I love it. <laughs> it's great. Um, but then there are the small market teams who are worried about being able to compete because all of their their star players, once they, you know, uh, reach free agency after six years, um, get snatched away by all of the teams that can afford more. Um, and so Bud Selig's dream uh, is to get uh, revenue sharing between the teams and, like, impose, um, you know, a more uh, equal financial arrangement between them so that um, the smaller teams will get some money from the bigger teams and then they'll be able to uh, to sign better players and compete. Um, and, you know, this is a decent, it's a decent reasonable goal, but the way he goes about it is just so backhanded and everybody is lying and backstabbing and pressuring and arm twisting and it's just, you know, and like he gives his negotiator the authority to negotiate on his behalf, you know, and they like they go back go back and forth with the head of the players union um and finally finally hammer out a deal and then Selig says nope actually you know like Selig is like okay and then he like goes back on it and 
it's just like and then everything falls apart again you know and like it basically didn't get to they were I think five days from opening day five or six days from opening day in 1995 and they uh, they went to court um, the the players were charging them with unfair labor practices for you know not negotiating in good faith and for canceling their like their pension their health care plans um, without warning things like that um, and Sonia Sotomayor current Supreme Court justice um, was the judge in the in that case and she ruled against the owners um, and gave them like this blistering condemnation of their negotiating tactics um, and yeah she's badass this, um, this reminds me of um, when I think I read like a Jackie Mason book or something way back in the day and he was like yeah this is why like sports this is why you don't have a ton of like famous Jewish sports players and it's because like you know when when Jews for example heard about hockey they were like oh that's a great reason to become a dentist <laughs> well I don't know there there I feel, I feel like they're probably some Jewish owners you know in here it's just you know they're not singled out as being Jewish which is is nice <laughs> that you know nobody is focusing on anybody's Jewishness and they're, like they're all just equally terrible people um, and yeah, and like bike, I feel like you know the one thing that I do you know really appreciate about the baseball part of this book is that like in comparison to what's going on behind the scenes, the baseball itself, when occasionally there's like a paragraph or two about like the actual pennant races and the games that are going on, you know, and the and the players um, just actually playing the game, you know, it feels like it feels so pure and innocent compared to what's going on, all these machinations behind the scenes. Um, and it just, you know, it makes me enjoy the baseball stuff even more, ironically. Awesome. So, yeah, um, that's yeah. my obsession. And if anyone's looking for a really long baseball distraction, I highly recommend Baseball by Ken Burns, which is a, like, 16-hour documentary or something about the history it's of baseball. It's divided into nine innings. And yep. then there are some extra innings. Yeah. And it actually came out, I think, on the eve of the strike. So it's very kind of colored by that, the original sections of it. Um, oh, that's I, interesting. Yeah. I watched it on VHS when I was a kid. Um, yeah. When we, I first hit my baseball phase. We got our, our first DVD player because uh, it came out on DVD and, and we got it that way. That um, literally sounds like torture to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, really well, this interesting. Book, this book is like 600 pages long and then there are like 50 pages of end notes and index. So like it oh could be gosh. worse tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't know how much worse. <laughs> well, tomorrow, oh what's your obsession? <laughs> Uh, totally something that neither of you could relate to, but um, not baseball. Uh, my obsession this week is a really good song from one of my favorite uh, Korean singers. Her name is Sunmi. She was part of a girl group called Wonder Girls that was like really, 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 really insanely popular for a while. And every time she releases a solo track, it's really a wonderful song. And this one, it's called Gashina, which means essentially bitch. And I really like it because it's like a euphemism for that not so nice word about women. Um, but there's like this word play in the song. So the song is like a really good dance track and she's a really talented performer. And the song, hold on, I want to pull it up to make sure I don't get it wrong. So each chorus of the song has the exact same phrase and nothing changes 
in the choruses, but there's this wordplay because the word, the title, Gashida, like actually means like it can mean anything from bitch to pretty woman to thorn. So each chorus in the song's progression has a different meaning, but they're like the chorus doesn't change at all. It's just you're kind of like supposed to know from the lyrics, but because most K-pop fans don't speak Korean, they don't understand this. So someone pointed this out to me and I had already been thinking about it because I knew the word had some meanings and I was like, oh, that'd be so cool if she did it. And then someone on YouTube commented that the meanings of it mean like three different things. So at different points, the song is asking, why are you leaving a beautiful girl like me, sir? Which is like really polite. And then it's like, why are you like plucking at like thorny a beautiful thing like me and then there's like why are you leaving me i'm the bitch aren't i and it's just i really like wordplay and i really like this song so when i found it out it was just like this just makes this song so 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 much better and it came out i think it was like the same day as taylor swift's look what you made me do and everyone was like aside from hating on that song everybody was just like oh my gosh taylor swift is trying to like reclaim her her like reputation and this is so white feminist or just feminist in general and I was sitting here like listening to this song like she is literally calling out all her haters in many different ways and just like taking control of like the Korean word for bitch which I was just like loving so yeah that's what I'm obsessed with right now I just really like wordplay and I really like the song <laughs> wait you like wordplay with our titles I would never have guessed yeah that's puns <laughs> that's puns this is this is so I I really think this is cool because they didn't like literally nothing changes in the song. You mm-hmm. only know it if you know it. And it's and the the word doesn't change, the the tone doesn't change at all, but because Korean grammar is ridiculously complex that the same phrase pronounced the exact same way is different. Like somebody somebody like wrote it down like one's ironic formal and then the other one is intimate and formal and the third one is rude dialectal. So, like, because there's... That's old- really interesting. Well, Korean has, like, I think it's eight different general uh, ways of speaking. So there's, like, formal, polite, um, and then within formal and polite, there's two different ways. And then in casual, there's two or four different ways. I don't remember. I used to know this all really well, but now I just know it. And then dialects are really different. So, like... When people say, like, American dialect versus English dialect, I'm just like, you haven't heard Korean. Literally, there's these videos where they sit, like, five different people from different dialects in a room, and they don't understand each other many times because they're just like, that's not Korean. But it is. And they all have the same root, but because they have different grammatical endings, things are really different and really complicated. So this song took advantage of the complexity of Korean grammar and just picked one phrase and used it for like a bunch of different meanings without changing anything. So it's it's pretty much whatever mood you're in while you're listening to the song, that's how you interpret that line. And I just think that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> like a Rorschach test. Pretty much. That's yeah, funny because I, I, don't, I don't know if you can describe many pop songs as taking advantage of the complexities of grammar. <laughs> so. Uh, so a lot of Korean ones do because there's a lot of really complex grammar. So there's a lot of like wordplay. This is the most complex I've ever heard of. And I don't know, like the singer hasn't commented on it, but I'm sure she's aware of it. I'm one, I don't know which one she thinks the song is more or less about, but I'm sure it could be all three and she did it on purpose. She's... I don't know how to explain this without like being like, here's all her videos. She does these really um, 
kind of like theatrical performances that are are focused on her dances but there's also this sense of like not sensual or sultry just like very um like atmospheric lust (laughs) i really don't know how to describe it and she really performs really well and each of her solo songs have like really resonated with the korean audiences they don't really resonate with the international k-pop audience because i think the lyrics are the the selling point um and so this is the first one she's released in a few years and i was like kind of concerned and then she came out with this song that i was just like mind was blown by and i was just like this is so cool if all the american pop music like took the time to like fill their songs with like hidden meanings instead you have taylor swift literally coming out and telling us she's dead because she can so i got really excited i really think this song aside from the wordplay it's like very it's very feminine but also very like i'm not gonna take your crap i'm not gonna like take anything from you so i thought it was a really like modern feminist anthem because nowadays feminism isn't just being strong it's also being you and doing what you want to do and this is exactly what she wants to do and i think it's so great yeah this past week i was uh pretty grateful not to care very much about taylor swift (laughs) 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 i have to say although i do think the people uh overreacted a little bit like oh somebody called her a snake how dare she use a snake emoji like oh my gosh so uh my obsession is a book called scythe unsure about how to pronounce the word um uh, but by uh, Neil Shusterman, who is a very prolific oh, author. Yeah. Um, so he is. Online yes. Yeah. I haven't actually read any any of his other uh, work, but I had heard that this was good, and I picked it up in Target like a whole bunch of months ago, and um, didn't read it and had it around and w- just put down a book that I had started and was like not super into, and it was over there right where I was looking, and I was like, all right, well, I'll pick this up and, and, and check it out. And it's really good, guys. Um, it's, it's about, I mean, honestly, to, like, tell you what it's about is a little bit, no, it doesn't ruin it, but it's a little bit reductive, because it sounds kind of like a, like, one of those, uh, you know, it's YA, but this doesn't really matter, um, one of those speculative fiction books that that it sounds like a like oh well what if and then two teenagers you know but um it's it's really much deeper than that um but i guess the formal summary would be uh it's a world where humanity has uh conquered death and illness and all of kind of uh there's no more government and human judgment is left to basically um, the cloud, but the cloud has evolved to become the thunderhead and it knows all things and can communicate with people and make sure that nobody basically suffers at all. Uh, but, uh, the only thing it can't do is control population. So there are a group of, of, there's an order of people called scythes who are basically in responsible for killing people. Uh, and, it's about these two teenagers who become uh, apprenticed to a sky kind of against their will. And it's really interesting. Like it, it's, it's very kind of written with an awareness of its own kind of bizarre weight, you know, and, and there's a lot of reflections on what the idea of a deathless world would do to art and to people's psychology and uh, you know, just, just the way 
society functions, um, especially when you have this kind of benevolent, all-ruling cloud that keeps, you know, humanity basically in check, except for these skies. Uh, and I, I, I find it really well-written and really deep, and I'm, I'm almost done, and I'm very much enjoying it. I think uh, I'm kind of glad I, it took me this long to pick it up, because the sequel's coming out in uh, January, I think? And I'm really excited to read it, because it's, it's a darn good book. It also, it gets really dark at points, because uh, there's certain scythes who are uh, really not good people. And the book is, is fairly unflinching in describing how, how not good they are and the effects of that on the people around them uh, and who are exposed to that. So I, uh, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Really definitely recommend it. It's more kind of sci-fi than I expected it to be because of that kind of cloud element and kind of ambiguous morality element, but uh, I, I enjoy it a lot. Um, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like a the kind of thing that I would expect him to write after having read uh, his other series, the Unwind series, because that also is like, you know, what if, you know, we could, you know, dismantle um, the abortion system, but what? But then uh, you're not allowed to abort anybody, but you can have your child unwound because we found a way for you to to basically donate every single organ and fiber in their being um and so they are not considered having died they are considered living in a divided state and so any child um from i think like you know so from conception to birth it's it's uh you know life is inviolable whatever not allowed to be uh touched but then uh, once they're from birth to like age um, 17 or 18, um, if a parent decides that they don't want them, they can have them, they can have them unwound. Um, and it is really fascinating because it, talk, it discusses, you know, and it gets into, you know, like the psychology behind, you know, people who accept this as their reality and, you know, that systems evolve around it like there's a one of the main characters is is uh from like a very religious family and he was raised as a tithe he was the 10th child and it, he was raised from birth to know that he was going to be unwound when he reached like 12 years old and that was like his entire purpose in life and then like he runs into these other main characters who are you know, on the run for various reasons, because um, they are going to be unwound, and they, uh, you know, he starts questioning his entire worldview, and anything, anyway, it's a, it's a really interesting, I really like the, fir the first book the best, but I think the rest of the series does explore a lot of issues as well. Yeah, um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to checking out the next books, and I, I might, I might actually pick up his other work too, because, yeah, yeah, I recommend that series. Yeah, very very <laughs> thoughtful, very interesting. And he writes quickly, so that's good. Oh, that's good. <laughs> produces like like this these book, I think the Unwind series is like four books and like they came out like, you know, one after the other every year or something. Yeah, th this is I mean, you know, like looking into the series, I'd I'd heard about it, like I'd heard some buzz around it. But then uh, you know, you like you look something up and it's like, "Oh, this book has been optioned for a movie." And usually that's like, oh my god, are you kidding me? But I actually think this could be a, a really solid, you know, I, I'm always looking for that, that movie to make speculative young adult fiction a respectable film endeavor again. 
uh, yeah, which it has not, not been for a good long time. <laughs> uh, yeah. The fifth wave didn't do it. It was yeah. It's 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 a it's a grim situation. Um, but maybe this. I will. think the author is also a screenwriter, so he might yeah. be doing some of the screenwriting. Oh, so cool. that might help, might not. I don't know. Yeah. So I haven't read it, but now I kind of want to. But as as you were talking, it kind of reminded me. Not because it's the same, but it reminded me of the film Anne Flux. I don't know if either of you saw it. Um, uh, it was with Charlie Theron in like the early two thousands, and pretty much it's like a also. A world where uh, people are responsible for the population, but instead of like killing them because they don't die, the I hope nobody's listening who has wants to see this movie. It was came out in two thousand five, so I don't care about spoilers anymore. <laughs> yeah, the spoiler. <laughs> much, uh, yeah, uh, it's expired. Really wanna, unless either of you really want to watch it, so pretty much it turns out that um, humans are infertile, so everyone's clones, and there's scientists who decide who to recycle and who not to. So it, I was like, also like, oh, this is interesting how like they can do everything. Like it's a really futuristic society, but they can't like deal with life. And this scythe also sounds similar to that. Like, oops, we've we've made humans, I guess, too scientifically enhanced. And this is also like we we enhance them, but we effed up their fertility system. So I don't know. It just reminded me of it a little hmm. bit. Yeah, and he also wrote Snow Crash, which is a book that I have heard of for years and years and years yeah. and years and years and years and never got into. Wait, no, uh, no, that's a different guy. Neil Stevenson wrote Snow is Crash. Is it? Because, wait, hang on. Yeah. I was just... Neil Schusterman um, is Oh, right, different. right, okay. Right, I was yeah. going to say that it was neat. So, okay, you can edit that out if you want tomorrow. Crash <laughs> <laughs> is good, too. I've, I've, I've read it. Uh, somebody lent it to me for one of my birthdays. Um, although... Yeah, it didn't really make me want to read any more of Stevenson's work, but that's my personal taste, you know. Yeah. Cool, cool. All right, so let's get, I guess, you know, um, to segue, uh, Scythe is the first book in a series. <laughs> so, uh, and I think that it's, it's handling that responsibility really, really well. All right, so that's going to wrap up our current obsessions. Now we're going to move on to our main subject, which is beginnings. What do you guys think makes... A good a good starting point for a series or kind of any kind of creative endeavor like what makes what makes a beginning stand out to you a quality that like I look for when I'm starting out with um, especially TV shows I think you know like there's obviously the concept but also uh, I really like to see you know the character dynamics and um, how the how the writers see this ensemble fitting together like to me character dynamics and ensemble um is pretty much what makes or breaks a tv show um and so shows that have these things together from the get-go like what comes to mind is uh pushing daisies and firefly for whatever the reason those those are popping to my head right now um but they just they have these like really solid well-established characters right from the get-go and they play off each other uh really really well right away um and you don't feel like anybody's finding their footing you just feel like you know these are these are people and we're right in the middle of their lives um yeah and so that really helps um with setting up you know to be a you know to be a pilot episode for a show um to just you know get everything in motion it helps to to have a really solid core of characters. 
Yeah, something I like, honestly, is maybe, maybe it's a lot to ask, but I kind of like things that don't feel like they're the first of a series, you know, like, and, and that that's a really big demand to make, especially of like a television show. But I'm thinking back to, you know, for example, the pilot of Lost. And I think that drew so many people in because it was, in a way, its own contained story that invited you into the rest. Uh, whereas, you know, and, and there are plenty of amazing shows that have, you know, very either like remarkably bad pilots or pilots that just aren't great. Uh, but, but work a day and get the job done. And that's entirely understandable because it's very, very difficult to write a pilot and start a TV, uh, you know, a TV show or even a book series. But I, I like, you know, I like that feeling that you, that the writers or the author, uh, or the filmmakers have created, uh, one kind of whole pod, you know, and you can enjoy that for what it is. And if you are further interested, you can come back and enjoy that in different you know, iterations as well. And I, I think even Star Wars does that. Like, the first Star Wars movie was not supposed to be... Yeah, I don't think know, they intended for it to no. be, you know, future... Yeah, I mean, I think um, George Lucas had some ideas, but but he didn't have... Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I, I really like that feeling of um, of completeness, I think, which, again, I know is is a lot to ask, but it's, it's part something... of why I didn't like Force Awakens, but let's <laughs> not get into that. <laughs> well, that, I mean, you know, that's not the first, but anyway, um, yeah, I, so I think, you know, talking about Sky, like, I am completely, you know, immersed in this world, and I want to read more, but I'm also hoping that, like, I'm, I'm interested to see what happens to the characters in this in this book, and um, I think maybe it comes a little bit uh, from my my love of the lost art of the standalone novel. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but you know, and and I love series, and I think that series are amazing. But I I do think that there is a certain amount of like, well, you can't, you know, you you can't necessarily depend on people reading the rest you know uh, uh, the hunger games is a perfect example i would be 100 million percent fine if the hunger games started and ended with the hunger games the first <laughs> novel um i did not need anything else and yeah tomorrow how about you i think i i definitely agree with you that like i want some things especially books to be self-contained but for tv shows i want i guess I want it to be a little bit long, like more foresighted. Like I like when you have a TV series that like years down the road, they harken back to something that happened in the like original, like pilot um, just, and like that they've been quietly laying that groundwork for like years. And then suddenly something like revisits the past. Uh, I five. You should watch Babylon five. I don't want to watch Babylon five. <laughs> I'm just saying that that, that is like their um, element. They do. I'm, I was really wowed by something recently, and I don't remember what it was. It wasn't The Good Place, but The Good Place did this really well this year. Um, I just like, I appreciate where, particularly for TV shows, that it doesn't feel like you're just relying on like your first, what is it, eight episodes is usually what they, they cast. They usually plan for like a 12 episode first season so like yeah you want I want you to set the ground for that first season but I really really do appreciate when there's kind of this larger mythology that also is you know self-contained like it it matters for that episode and it matters for that season but also that like down the line you can kind of harken back to the origins and be like oh this 
this is that for all this time. So I think that's, to me, a really good first pilot episode of a TV show. For books, I, I agree with Michal. I, I think I kind of get annoyed when a, when a... I don't mind that books, like, you know, like, they're a series. A lot of the... Like, I read a lot of series, so, like, you should have something that wants you to continue reading the books uh, after the first book. But I also... Like, I just read... Uh, the thief, which Michal suggested to me, and if I didn't know that it w- it didn't have any more books in the series, I probably would have been still really happy. I'm really happy that there's other books to read, but but it was very self-contained, even though it set the ground for further stories about the characters. So yeah, I guess, well, the thief is kind of an interesting uh, example. Yeah, in that I case, know. Cause... As I was speaking, I was like, "Wait, no, Michal said that." No, no, no. It's it it standalone. is a good example. I think in that way because I think that sometimes you know, more, not always, obviously, I mean, like, Tolkien, well, I mean, I guess you could say maybe The Hobbit, you know, um, the reason Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings was because there was such a huge response to The Hobbit, but, you know, he didn't write Fellowship of the Ring thinking, well, that's it, you know, um, <laughs> but, but I do think that a lot of series maybe surprise their writers uh, in a way that, like, writers who don't necessarily go in thinking that this is a huge undertaking, you know, with, with, you know, three or more books and, and stuff like that, I think are sometimes, not always, it can actually be a, a bad thing sometimes, but sometimes it's almost more delightful because the writers have left things in place that they don't even realize that they've left, and, and then they get to go back and plumb that, and I think that was the case with Megan Whelan Turner, uh, and I, I agree with you, Tamar. I think, yeah, I mean, it's definitely, in terms of, like, recalling you know the 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 origins of a, a story's own origins there's really nothing quite like that feeling of a television show that you've been following for years that goes back to like something in the pilot you know um i mean not to drop lost again but i guess <laughs> don't do it like lost and just make the characters the the skeletons in the cave some like stupid random like <laughs> oh my gosh uh, everything about that first pilot did not work that first season I, okay, don't, I can't talk about no, Lost. No, <laughs> Lost is a really weird, it's really weird because the first season they, is amazing, but it doesn't line up with anything that happens afterward. I mean, they literally were just like randomly trying to sort of not explain the weirdness of the first season. Like, oh, the polar bear, did they ever really, really explain that? Like, sort of, but not really? I think they said because like, they, were, they were brought there for experiments with the, the Dharma project or whatever. Yeah, but that was like kind of dumb like the dharma initiative like they kind of i'm guessing what they thought it was going to be would be one season and they were going to really go at it and then halfway through they were like oh nope people want more um i don't think they had that planned and i still to this day i I, know for sure they didn't have a lot planned like like they had the hatch on the island and like jj abrams you know insisted like there has to be a hatch and everyone was like well what's in the hatch and he's like we'll figure that out later you know, That's like, everything good. was very seat of the pants. I mean, you if you know? want to blame this on J.J. Abrams, which I think is fair, he also, I think, came in, directed, you know, the two hours of the pilot, which were phenomenal, and I was like, bye! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Later, so. guys! Enjoy mm-hmm. this mystery, <laughs> you know? <laughs> make it and make then, sense. And then, like, yeah. the ending just didn't make any sense at the beginning of the show, but whatever. I don't care anymore. I hate Lost. <laughs> I kind of want to watch the entire thing over again now that I know how it ends and see, you know, like, how how it all all works and if it, you know, bothers me more on the on watching it again or bothers me less. 
I think that we've now found the second thing in this episode that you would have to pay me to watch. (laughs) I, 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 I like cringe at the thought of having to sit through Lost all over again and just knowing that I'm gonna be disappointed. Not just because like, I didn't think it was a horrible finale, but just didn't, everything just like, they just at a certain point were just like, we don't know what we're doing, so we're just gonna do X, Y, Z and try to hope that somewhere it ends up along the way good. Like, yeah. yeah, no, for me, when I when I think about Lost and when I rec- if I ever recommend it to anybody, I tell them that, like, I think it peaks at the fifth season. I think the fifth season makes you feel like, you know, they really suddenly, you know, started pulling things together and they, they had a direction and they had some momentum and you felt like, you know, things were coming together. And then the sixth season happens and everything falls apart. But, um, like... If you can, I would recommend watching Lost up until the end of the fifth season and then just stop. But of course, it ends on a massive cliffhanger, so you can't do that. No, I think you you have to watch all of Lost. You have to go through the highs, the lows, the very, very lows. I mean, my my (laughs) philosophy going into the final season of Lost was, I think, maybe maybe a little bit into the season, I was like, oh, they're not going to answer these questions. They're not going to tell me why women die giving birth on the island. They don't know. No. So I kind of went in a little bit more, like, at peace with that and, and being like, okay, well, we'll see what they do, you know. Uh, yeah, I had a complicated relationship with Lost as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't think we can discount as far as if you want to talk about, like, pivotal origins. I'm reaching here a little bit. But but it, it made a tremendous impact on television and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and pop culture in general. And I think that, you know, for definitely all of its drama on screen and off uh i think genre fans do owe it a debt personally i definitely agree yeah um but i was just thinking um i i've had this debate with uh other podcasters that i that i record with kind of about stories that have disappointing endings and very promising beginnings and i don't feel that like that a that a usually that an un satisfying ending uh, retroactively ruins a promising beginning. Usually, there are exceptions. It depends depends on the case, really. I think I don't like investing in something and then being disappointed. I feel like it's all been a lie. (laughs) I I totally hear that, but, like, do you do you retroactively, like, do you regret the time that you spent? If you, like, really want... Okay, interesting. I, I, I regretted, I regretted loss because for me... Not, I don't think this is the same case for all shows. Like, if Game of Thrones ends, ends in a certain way that I don't enjoy, like, the experience will have gone on there. I think there's a few cases where the path doesn't seem worth the journey. And I think Lost is definitely one of them. Because, for me, at least, the whole purpose of Lost was I watched, not necessarily because I liked the characters or because I liked the acting, but I watched because I wanted to know what, what was going on. Like, the, everything to me was the mystery. And then... <laughs> Okay, it's like, <laughs> it was such a cop out. It it really like I don't I don't think I loved certain But it wasn't parts. even that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like I don't even like I don't I don't necessarily love certain parts of the last book of Harry Potter, but I still think it was a very true to Harry Potter ending and very true to JK Rowling ending. And um I just I just don't feel the same way like honestly if game of thrones ends with everybody dying like that'd be the most george rr R. martin thing i can think <laughs> of and so like i'd probably like throw across the book if he ever finishes the books like i'd throw it across the room and just be like scream my head off but at the same time it'd be like 
okay, but this is like makes sense. It's when it's when for me it's when something doesn't seem to make sense that I get really frustrated. Like uh, I don't know if anybody else has read Sarah J. Mass's books, but uh, she has two series and. This is the this is the point we're at with two with each of these two series. I don't remember their names honestly. I just like kind of read them and then I'm like, this is annoying. I still read them though and I don't know why. One of them, she has her falling in love with some other guy in each of the first three books, and then she's now like five or six books into the series and she still has no, I don't know where she's going with half of these characters. Um, but each one, each of the first three books was like, I have a lot of love for my this guy. And then at the end of each one, she's like, oh, wait, no jokes on that. I'm going to go for another guy. So like just really bad romance novel writing and just really like the plot's just very tenuous. Then the other series, she finished the three first books. The, everything was concluded. And then at the end, like the book is done. And then the last page is there will be more books. And I'm just like, why? Oh. Like, like you need to know when to stop and I think Lost didn't really know when to stop and things like that bother me like where you have good ideas and the beginning is really promising and like I see the threads of of, of glory in you and then you just like let it all go towards the end so like I can like a pilot but like I'm going back to it because it's like the, the series that I think is most easily enjoyed because of its finale rather than its beginning The Good Place like it just got better and better and better. And if it doesn't continue getting better and better and better, I might get a little sad. Yeah. Yeah, I totally hear that. And I think that, you know, that's an interesting point about thematic consistency as opposed to maybe... Maybe it's not necessarily what happens in the story as long as it feels as though the art is being true to itself. And I I totally agree with you. But I'm kind of like... This is I maybe... disagree on the case of Lost that it wasn't true to it because, like you said, you already knew going into the final season that they weren't going to answer all these questions because that's just not their pattern of storytelling. And they also they they were so far, fr- they had they had made so many questions that they kind of I think everybody was just like okay, there's no way they can answer them all, but maybe they can answer one or two of the biggest ones, and then they just were like, haha, jokes on everybody, this was this was purgatory the whole time, and you're like, but that's not what you made it seem the whole freaking time. Well, it wasn't, it I, wasn't I really it purgatory. Was. I mean, it okay, well, I don't know like, what that, it was that, And that was the problem, is that <laughs> there was know. no explanation at all for the island, that the exactly. island wasn't even explained, that, like, purgatory was that other place that they were, you know, flashing to in the final season, but the island itself was just some weird island in the end. You know, and it didn't mean anything. I don't know, and I'm getting so stressed right now. Because <laughs> I'm so traumatized by loss. Okay, can I, can I um, just name something that I think that, you know, it had a you know, really promising beginning, but a lot of people like to pretend that, like, it, it never had any, you know, continuations? By all means. That would be The Matrix. The Matrix. Oh, yes. A lot of people love The Matrix, the first movie, and I think that that's fine on its own and like that nothing gets negated by the fact that like the sequels everybody hates and whatever you know you don't have to like the sequels to be able to enjoy the matrix in itself because like Michal said you know it is a standalone you know its own its own self-contained story so you can continue if you want you know but you don't have to and you can you know in your own headcanon you can be like that never happened doesn't exist I think I agree with you. The Matrix is is one of the things where I just like like to forget that there was more to it than the first one. Yeah, 
<laughs> like, I vaguely remember watching the other two, but I, I don't remember actually the movies, you know? Like, it's just The Matrix, and that's it. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like that with uh, the Serenity movie. I, I don't... I hate that movie. I don't particularly like it either. I'm with you on that. Yeah. But um, I, I understand why they did it that way. It was my first um, exposure to the Firefly universe, so it's slightly different for me, you know? But, like, I can still, you know, look at it and be like... Yeah, that kind of feels like, you know, a you know, slightly different series with the same it just happened to have the same characters, you know. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, or or similar characters who weren't entirely consistent, but, but <laughs> <laughs> that's a different story. Um yeah, but no, I mean I I the reason I bring this up is because I, you know, I did have this debate with people um and maybe this might be a controversial example, but um I really had very very mixed feelings about Agent Carter, uh, particularly season two. I loved and Agent Carter. what? I loved Agent Carter. Yeah, I didn't. Um, I I thought it was. Mm. <laughs> I thought I season was two was kind of. Old. <laughs> I <laughs> I really didn't like season two. Um, I I thought it started very promisingly though, and there was an episode in uh, you know the first few of season two that I thought was straight up brilliant and wonderful and a really excellent episode and I was really looking forward to seeing where the series went from there and then was thoroughly disappointed. With the backstory on the villain? Yes, exactly. Uh, and Peggy's well, backstory as well. That was an excellent, excellent episode and really asked a lot of very potent questions and, and um, brought up some really interesting themes. And then uh, it didn't do go anywhere with either of those things it was you know well she's bad and easily defeated and and then peggy wins or something i don't know it, it wasn't particularly yeah. i don't think the finale was very good no the finale too. was awful I think it, you know, it was very anticlimactic um and i don't you know necessarily think that they paid off you know all of the emotional arcs that they you know set in motion but like I said earlier in the episode, for me, like what matters to me generally is character is the, is the character interactions and the dialogue and just how how solidly they, you know, they feel like they you know go together and belong together and that core just you know, Eden Carter had had just such a fantastic cast I think, um, and. Like, I could watch all those characters doing nothing but, like, sitting around a table and drinking tea, you know? And, like, I, I would love that, you know? Like, if they just continued the show and had, had that for five episodes, I would do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess the reason I bring it up is because I really felt that, um, you know, a lot of my, my friends who I was discussing it with, who had even stronger feelings on the, on the show than I did, uh, really felt that, kind of retroactively, that episode had been ruined by... The conclusion of the, of the plot line, and I was like, no, you know what? I still enjoyed watching that episode, and we we went, we went into it for a really long time discussing this. So I find it really interesting to kind of see how people think, because I mean, honestly, I've been on the other side of this debate sometimes too. Like I I thought that the conclusion of Veronica Mars season two, for example, um, it's been a long time. I'm gonna spoil season it. Season two. Season two. Okay. Is it okay if I spoil that? Yeah, no, no I just wanted to, I, I wasn't sure if you were going to go for the whole show and then you went for season two. Oh, no, no. So so that's mm. that's when you find out that um, Beaver is apparently a supervillain. Oh. Um, that was so annoying. Yeah, yeah a be Beaver who has been, uh, you know, abused. Dorky like, little nerd. Yeah. Uh, and the victim of, of, 
of sex sex abuse as a child, um, you know. But no, he's he's apparently exactly the same kind of mustache twisting villain that we get in the end of the first season. And I found that so profoundly disappointing that I couldn't I couldn't deal with what had come before it. You know, I just kind of had to be like, this is all wrong. And like, Did even you stop watching. I know because I I I binge I binged it, so I did watch. Oh. <laughs> I did watch the rest, but I kind of just. I, I mean, the rest of season, you know, season three wasn't that great anyway. And then I, I really didn't like the movie because I realized that Veronica just fundamentally annoys me as a person. And maybe what was okay <laughs> as a teenager is not so okay when you're an adult. Um, and like, you know, people just randomly girls. dying around you and you're like, well, at least I have my man. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. Um, but I know a lot of people really did enjoy it. So, uh, who like Veronica more than I did. So, um, I don't mean to you know, take away anyone's enjoyment. But with about the beaver thing, like for me, like I didn't, I, I didn't mind that, that reveal so much because I do think that like, you know, with his, you know, his, his, his background and everything, you know, sometimes, you know, people do, you know, explode like that. Um, one, but one thing that I, I really didn't like was that they like retroactively like reopened the Veronica rape storyline by having him have, com- having committed that also. And it was well, just so they, unnecessary. They made him, like, I, I could, I could, I didn't mind necessarily, I mean, I didn't want him to be because I, I loved him as a character, but I didn't mind him being, uh, the culprit per se of like the initial thing that had happened in the season because, I, I thought it might have been a really interesting way to go that, like, somebody dr- driven to such horrific lengths to keep a secret that was so awful to them. You know, I, I thought that would be a very interesting thing to explore, but they didn't do that. All they did was, like, no, he's evil, you know? Yeah. And then and then kills, like, they a million like, people and also raped Veronica. And it's just like, I what? You know, and again, like, in the first season, they had had such an effective, you know, evil villain that had that had really been satisfying and and shocking and and juicy to to enjoy and then they just went the exact same way and it was like what why are you doing this this character doesn't line up with what you've yeah because like it was it was a uh you know it was a very nuanced motivation for a villain but then the portrayal of the actual villain once he was revealed he just you know he just went all super extreme and no nuance at all yeah yeah, exactly. Well, that's where Veronica Mars tended to fail in general. Like, there was always really good nuances, and I, th- I mean, I still, like, will watch it occasionally in, like, like a episode or two, but I always felt like sometimes, like, I, I enjoyed it more as a teenager because I, I was less, like, complex as a human being, and the plot line is equally, sometimes it just kind of falls flat. And then other times you're just like, what just happened here? Yeah. But more or less, more typically falls flat. Yeah, but not to turn this into another ending discussion. I guess I guess maybe oh, that's yeah. inevitable <laughs> when you're our, our original. So to wrap up, we're just going to kind of discuss some of our, or really kind of mention, uh, you know, some of our all-time favorite beginnings. I know SM, you definitely have some. Um, well, what did I did I mention already? I said pushing daisies, uh, Firefly. There's better off Ted, and. Battlestar Galactica miniseries. I'll, I'll just stick with those four because I'll just keep going, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Tamar, how about you? Um, so I guess my favorite pilots are... Um, I have uh, 
as I'm just did around Robin, I'm going to go into depth about one of mine. Um, I really like Charms Pilot, and I really did not, but I appreciate Doctor Who's reboot pilot. Uh, that's the one I want to talk about really quickly. I think that it did a really good job uh, reintroducing the series to people who may have never heard of the show before. It's the most ridiculously cheesy pilot ever in existence. I love it. <laughs> but, but I think that within like that whatever it is, 45-minute episode or hour episode, you kind of get a feel for who the Doctor is. You get an idea of the world that you'll be dealing with. You get an idea for what a companion is and what a companion is not to the Doctor. And you kind of get an idea of, like, how sometimes the show is really silly and sometimes, like, it has a lot of depth to it. And I think, like, it's a ridiculous episode. <laughs> but it's also really good as a, as a starting-off point. I don't necessarily think that everyone should start with it. Because everyone should start with Blink. But um, it is a good introduction to the series itself. Uh, so, yeah, I just, I think those are, and Charmed is just such a great pilot. <laughs> How, oh, a special mention of Alias. Um, if you haven't seen the Alias pilot, you should see the Alias pilot. I mean, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give a shout out to the first chapter of Harry Potter, which I know is a slightly controversial. I, I uh, always recommend Yes, I I know, I know, and I think that that's awful because I love. Oh my gosh, I can't imagine skipping it. I I love it. I think it's it's it turns so many people off that otherwise get into it. Well, that's that's fine, (laughs) but it turned me on to it very much. The writing style and the the quirkiness and the secrecy of of the whole atmosphere Um, atmosphere I think is is a is a huge thing that I get from the first chapter uh, that I. I really value and I, I my favorite points during the books are kind of when J.K. Rowling goes back to that voice that she establishes that kind of like very wry omniscient observative tone uh, and that's one like of my favorite like in the other minister chapter yes oh my god the other minister is the best chapter ever oh my god <laughs> and I always sit there being like okay who is the prime minister then dealing with this <laughs> Um, yeah, but, you know, in, in addition to that, I, I think I would also say, um, uh, again, so cliche, but, but a Game of Thrones, you know, is, mm. is an amazing first entry. And obviously, you know, that, that doesn't follow, follow along with my kind of, you know, the accidental series idea, but it's, it's so tight, you know, it's, it's written so well and orchestrated beautifully. I've, re- I've reread it a whole bunch of times and have listened to, other people on on various podcasts and friends of mine discuss rereading it and really beat by beat it's an exceptionally paced book that introduces you to um you know aside from you know one of the first chapters ending with a a child being tossed out of a window after viewing an incestuous union (laughs) spoilers (laughs) spoilers yeah um I'm not saying who, but you know, um, but it it really teaches you how how to read it and what to expect and what you know and but but still maintains an element of surprise uh, that I really love. I'm sure, like the second we hang up, I'm going to think of like the perfect television or or movie <laughs> um, that that's going to start something. Um, perfect. I'm trying to think of movies that I really liked the first. Oh, I liked How to Train Your Dragon, the first one. Oh, the Hunger yeah, Games movie. I think the Hunger Games <sighs> movie was an excellent movie. I guess it made I enjoyed a lot it. of people cry. <laughs> I enjoyed it, but at that point I had already read the books and I did not appreciate the books anymore. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I had I had read it and I I felt like, you know, it evoked like all of the feelings that I had from the book and 
yeah, and I wasn't in a hate phase <laughs> about the book. <laughs> like, so I, like, I watched, I, I think I saw that movie, like, four times, and I cried every time. Yeah, um, I, I think that we, uh, yeah, we should talk more in depth about The Hunger Games at some point uh, to rehash that painful memory. Maybe on, like, memory. anniversary or something. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, we'll record on a fast day and just do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of some other some other firsts that I think are really well done. Well, I really like Brendan Sanderson's all of his firsts of any series he writes. <laughs> Just because I feel like I think his standalone books always leave me a little bit lacking, but the firsts of all his series always want me they always give me enough that I really feel like I understand the world to some degree, but at the same time there's so much I'm missing. Yeah, if that makes sense, and that's I think that's what makes him one of the most talented fantasy writers right now. I don't get the same way when I'm going to mention Michal's absolutely favorite person in the world, Patrick Rothfuss. I don't, <laughs> think, I don't think Rothfuss does it to that degree. Like Rothfuss sets up the mystery, but he doesn't build the world to the degree that Sanderson does. Like Sanderson, his mystery is the world unfolding, really, and Rothfuss is like the who did it, who's this person, who's that person. And it doesn't really matter if I don't know something if that's going on in the world. And I think that's, I really appreciate that type of world building in a first book because he always does that. Like, you kind of always have an idea of what's going on in the future books because, oh, right, we saw this to some degree in the first book in his, in his, and like, I don't know, I just like that. I want to give a, a little uh, nod to Lois McMaster Bujold and the Persigan series and I don't know like if I can really say because of beginnings but like her philosophy I thought of this earlier when we were discussing about standalone Um, her philosophy is that like books of a series uh, float together or sink together Um, so she tries to make she her metaphor was she tries to make each boat each each book a lifeboat of its own so that you can pick up the series at any point really um and like for the first i don't know maybe 10 books that's probably you know you can pick it up and you can enjoy it as a standalone and like it sets up everything that you need to know within that book um and you can always go back and you know go to the things that happened chronologically earlier or you can just keep reading um and I think that her books are really good at that. Um, and they just, they are very solid on the character front and on the world building front so that you, you can get everything that you need from, you know, just starting any of the books. I also just think that, that Shards of Honor and uh, Barry are, if you read them together, because that's how I Cordelia's think Cordelia's Honor. Yeah, they're just uh. so, so good like you they are a great first novel because the I mean if anybody hasn't read these I don't think many people have the whole series is really about the two like a couple that's in the first two books their son so it's really a standalone because it's giving you the background to this character's life and how he ended up being a certain way and I think that's really smart because it's a book that the Cordelia Honor, Honor series, two books, Shards of Honor and Barrier, that go together, and they they really set up everything. And if you want to stop reading, because okay, they have their their ending, you can. But also, they really you need to read them if you want to read the rest of the series. And I think it's so magical. I honestly, if anybody has any copies of the books that they want to get rid of, I will buy them from you. I've been hunting for them and I can't find any, and I don't own any, and it's really sad. 
yeah, I just wanted to give a shout out to some of our uh, Twitter followers. Uh, we really appreciate you guys responding to our and interacting with our tweets. We asked what your favorite beginnings were, and uh, my pal Zach actually said The Night Of, the pilot of The Night Of, which is called The Beach, which I did watch, uh, and that is quite harrowing and really beautifully done. And then the rest of the series lost me and I, I wasn't interested. Um, and our uh, follower Mia Merrill said Gilmore Girls. And that's interesting. That's a good one. Did you like the pilot of Gilmore Girls? Because I, I watched it after I had like been a Gilmore Girls fan. And this was years ago, so my, my perception could be off. But I really didn't enjoy the pilot after having like enjoyed the show. Um, I had I also started watching the show without seeing the pilot because I started watching it later. But I I think going back to the pilot always kind of makes me like oh this is like setting the 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 layers for them like there's all these little hints into who they'll become. It's not I don't think if I watched it and then watched the rest of the show I'd necessarily want to watch the rest of the show. But I think that as a pilot in relation to a show I really enjoyed for a very long time until the final season um, <laughs> that I think it was a really good like ground layer setting pilot foundation that's the word i'm looking for foundation <laughs> <laughs> and it was a very strong first season to be uh-huh. to be sure um all right so i think that's gonna wrap it up for us for this episode of nice jewish fangirls episode 20 Our 20th 20 guys 20 that is that is crazy big 2-0 yeah uh hopefully we will be back in touch with you guys uh before the jewish holidays but just in case we don't because you know things get crazy we hope you all have a wonderful jewish new year to those who celebrate and if you don't have an awesome september (laughs) that would be impossible to do me a call this is coming out on the 11th if all things go well and Chag is on the 18th. Okay, no? well then, maybe not. So then... <laughs> or the 20th. Chag Sameach, um, everybody. <laughs> I have a headache looking at my calendar. I'm not going to Simitova. Have a wonderful new year. Shana Tova. Yes, Shana Tova. Dip the apples. Listen to the chauffeur. Connect to God. All of those things. Uh, if you would like to connect with us, Tamar, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me at Tamar Writes on Twitter and Instagram, and my articles can typically be found at Billboard.com. NSM? Um, you can find me on Facebook, and every so often I write for, like, tablet, and um, my Amazon author page uh, is always there, and you can buy my fiction. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at InkAsRain, also Instagram, and you can find my writing at Hypable.com. You can find the Jewish Fangirls online on Twitter at Jewish Fangirls. On, uh, you can email us at NiceJewishFangirls at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys. You can find us on Facebook at Nice Jewish Fangirls. And, uh, of course, if you are coming to New York Comic Con, let us know. There's our event right there. We also have a new Instagram which is exciting, which is nice Jewish fangirls. Uh, yes, it is. We just started it. Perhaps so, so yeah, everybody go look at our Instagram of ni- <laughs> at nice Jewish fangirls. Yeah, find us there. And of course, as always, you know what I'm going to say. Guys, rate and review us on iTunes. And join our cake, our, our, sorry, our, join our <laughs> Comic-Con panel Facebook event by going through to the nice Jewish fangirls Facebook page and clicking interested or going to the event. Exactly. And just a reminder, that is free if you have a ticket to New York Comic Con for Sunday, which 
you do, right? You listener, you you know you do. Well, even you, if you, you forgot you to buy east, it. You east Even coast if you don't live listen. in this country, I'm sure you have. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Everybody everybody has a ticket to Sunday at New York. Except Comic-Con. for me yet. Mine hasn't gone yet. I'm very fast. You get a ticket and you get a ticket. <laughs> All right, so that's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it, guys. Happy New Year, and live long and prosper. Bye.